This is the Otaku Nate Show, episode 44, Tokyo Godfathers, the fairy tale of Shinjuku Park. What is up, anime fans? Otaku Nate here with another installment of the Otaku Nate Show, the anime podcast where we talk about anime that we want to talk about. Joining me this week is Justin Young. What's up, Anime Nation? And Sarah the Stardust Possum. Hey, nice to meet y'all. And making his triumphant return to the podcast. Our resident outsider, as I call him, it's Aaron Chapman. Hey, good to be with you all again. How have you been, Aaron? I've been good. I've been good. Coming in uh, loud and clear from the West Coast here. All the way out in the western province of Vancouver. Yeah, British Columbia, that's it, yeah. I know my Canadian geography. Everybody knows I'm a hockey fan. <laughs> yes, of course. And today... It's our late Christmas and super late New Year's episode, but never too late to start, and it's never too late to celebrate. We are going to look at not just a Christmas anime, we're looking at the Christmas anime, Tokyo Godfathers, released in 2003 by Studio Madhouse, directed by the one and only Satoshi Kon, and... I could easily say, oh, well, Satoshi Kon directed this and this and this, but given that Satoshi Kon is my favorite anime director and his story is so brilliant yet so tragic, I guess a little backstory is in order. And I actually scripted this one up so that I don't have to re-record it like I did with the Conan review. So Satoshi Kon was an animator, layout artist, storyboarder, writer, manga author, and... Of course, a director. Over the span of his life, he directed four movies and one TV series, making his debut in 1997 with Perfect Blue, and going on to direct Millennium Actress, today's subject, Tokyo Godfathers, Paranoia Agent, his one TV series, and perhaps his most visually stunning work, Paprika. Satoshi Kon was a man known for his use of surrealism in his work, from blurring the lines of an idol's private versus public life in Perfect Blue, the conscious versus the unconscious mind in Paprika, to an actress's life on and off screen in Millennium Actress, all of his films are gorgeous to look at and helped along by his clever use of editing, which we'll talk about in the review. I know I'm heaping praise on him, but you gotta understand, Satoshi Kon didn't just direct four movies, he directed four masterpieces. He would take his films to the various festivals and play them to packed houses. He was hailed by critics both in and outside of the fandom. And yet, even with all of this praise, it seemed that he always wanted to dream a little bigger when it came to what he wanted to make next. I once heard an anecdote from the New York Asian Film Festival where Satoshi Kon was a guest of honor, and I forever kicked myself to not going to that one 
where they made a montage for Satoshi Kon featuring highlights from all of his movies. After he had been introduced, and again, I'm just getting this secondhand, this is an anecdote, Satoshi Kon told the host something along the lines of, That was a great montage, but I don't think I've made my best movie yet. And unfortunately, this is where things take a tragic turn. In April of 2010, Satoshi Kon was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and given less than a year to live. He would spend the last few months of his life at home with his wife, whom he loved dearly. And then, on August 24, 2010, Satoshi Kon passed away at the age of 46. Prior to his passing, he was working on what would have been his fifth movie and first attempt at a children's film, Dreaming Machine. And while it was fully storyboarded, it has never been animated. And while Madhouse founder and good friend of Satoshi Kon, Masao Maruyama, has tried to get it properly released, it's likely that this film will never see the light of day given the current state of the industry. There's a lot that I could say about Satoshi Kon and his legacy and what he's left behind, but I think it's better to just talk about Satoshi Kon, at least from my perspective, when we get into the review proper. But as if the director being deceased isn't sad enough, the writer of this film was the late Keiko Nobumoto, who passed a few years ago. She's most famous for being the writer on Cowboy Bebop, Wolf's Reign, Macross Plus, and something that I think you'd be interested in, Aaron, the Netflix anime series Carol and Tuesday. So, obviously I've said a lot to introduce the film, and I wanted to have you on because Tokyo Godfathers is a movie that I felt would tickle your interest, Aaron, because you are a journalist and historian of your home city of Vancouver and what's going on in the underground, the crime and whatnot. What was the premise of Tokyo Godfathers? Well, it was it was interesting to me to watch it as a viewer. Um, I um, I wasn't familiar with uh, with his work. And uh, I, you're right. In addition to uh, being a uh, being a uh, an author and historian here in Vancouver, I also do some voiceover work uh, in in anime and, and cartoons and other uh, forums. So I, I, sometimes I watch these things and I'm listening attentively to the uh, some of the voice actors and things like that. But I guess to answer your question, just in terms of a, of a broader thing, in terms of the premise of it, it's. It's an interesting story. I thought it was an interesting story because I really couldn't tell from the beginning which way it was going to go. Um, ostensibly, it's a story about three homeless people who come across a lost infant um, in a pile of trash in, uh, in, at around Christmas in Tokyo, and they try and find uh, the parents of the, of the child, or, or ostensibly one thinks to keep them for a little while, but... Uh, the idea is to sort of there's a there's a real sort of theme of redemption, and there's no better there's no better season for uh, a theme of redemption to get cast. Uh, I think than 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 at Christmas as well. But um, but the, I think the story goes goes deeper than that, and and maybe we'll talk about that as we go on. Yes, it is the story of three homeless people: a surly middle-aged man named Gin, a teenage runaway named Miyuki and a six-foot transsexual named Hana. And oh, 
I can talk all day about Hana, but we're gonna save that that a little bit for later. It's funny how you talk about it's a Christmas movie that whose big theme is redemption, because Tokyo Godfathers is actually a spiritual remake of an old John Ford movie called Three Godfathers. In that movie, it's the story of three outlaws who come across a dying woman who has just given birth to a child and they must find a home for it. It was effectively John Ford's own take on the old nativity story. And Satoshi Kon, who was a big fan of Western cinema, took that idea and decided to set it in the modern day. Now, when you first watched this movie, Aaron, what were your initial thoughts on it? Well, <clears throat> it kind of reminded me a little bit of a little animated feature. It was actually kind of a claymation animation feature that came out a few years ago called The Junkies Christmas, based on a William S. Burroughs story that uh, has a sort of a redemptive, uh, against all odds, uh, and somewhat supernatural uh, ending, uh, or, or divine intervention at least, um, uh, affecting these uh, heroin junkies' lives. And it reminded me, in a just sort of tangentially, a little bit that. In as much as I, you know, I, I had read some of the reviews online, um, about it and, and people talk about sort of a sort of a heartwarming Christmas movie and things like that. But I, there's lots of there's lots there that sort of anti Christmas and anti at least anti consumerism. And I suppose maybe that has something to do with a little bit maybe the subtext that we wouldn't as maybe North American viewers what would be a, a, a Christmas story featured in Japan, you know, because which is a, a holiday that's sort of treated there a little bit differently in many ways and perhaps in terms of some of the consumerism in the same way. But I, I didn't necessarily see it as, as, a, as a heartwarming Christmas tale. Uh, you know, I, I guess there, there's, there's some happiness that, uh, that, that falls to the, to the downtrodden and, and, uh, and those without a home do find it or, or realize they always had one. Uh, and there's things like that. But, uh, you know, I, I, the darkness of the story and particularly the darkness of the city, of the city itself, you know, I, Tokyo is not shown in a very sort of welcoming light, and, and it, you know it's certainly a cold time of year and whatnot. But it's but when you think of some of the backgrounds and the panels and things like that, I'm I, I sort of given to think this is this isn't a city I would necessarily uh, want to visit, you know, by the way it's depicted. So there's a, there's a lot of subtext and there's a lot of things going on in the background and, and little Easter eggs, uh, you know, in some of the. Um, you know, and some of the some of the animation as well. But again, I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves, and uh, I'll, I'll get shoot it back to you here, Nate. All right, Justin, Sarah, where did you first hear of Tokyo Godfathers, and what were your impressions of it when you first watched it? I'm going to go first on this because I have one hell of a story. Oh, do um, tell. I'm... Yeah. Okay. So I actually I've seen this movie three times, twice in English once in Japanese, and the first time I saw it was picture a crowd of about 30 college kids crammed into a classroom, a basement classroom, no less, that probably legally could only hold about half that many people. And my mind was absolutely 
blown away. If we got actually came up ironically is and fittingly enough is our uh, voted on pick, which which was about a five and a half minute long process. It was which got paired up against a bunch of random episodes from random fantasy shows. But getting back to uh, Tokyo Godfathers, I watched this. And was so floored within the first five minutes. I actually uh, texted one of my friends at the time how it was going. And they were like, we got to watch this just from my text alone. And Aaron in his review mentioned that it's a very, it's not as heartwarming as people make it out to be, which I agree on 110%. Mm. But my unique take on it is that it had this, it kind of reminded me of Baltimore, which I don't live all that far from. (laughs) Yeah. Because it's got, it's gritty, it's weird, it's cramped, lots of homeless people. And yeah, I mentioned weird. It's also got this, it's got this sort of us against the world kind of cynicism. Um that kind of daily life in the city, frankly, reminds me of a lot. And to me, as a 20-something-year-old anime club attendee, it felt like no other Christmas special. And I will say this, it is no other Christmas movie special program, what have you, that has come out before or since. Because it carries with it, because... It's sure it's got all the Christmas surrealism, like no, like Netflix or heck these days, Hallmark, like to layer on and layer on their movies, like some sort of, like some sort of weird Lotus cake frosting. This, it, the movie serves as a complete, it's sort of a, it's a, it's a nut punch to that sort of Christmas sweetness that people like to expect. Like I said, it was. I think it's probably it's easily top top two. Actually, it's my co favorite Christmas movie of all time because it. Sure, you got all the it blends the non seasonal with the seasonal perfectly, right down to the actual animation, which I'm sure we could get to. And I'm just gonna gush and gush and gush and gush and gush, but the character choices, they, it feels like they were hand picked to reference the spectrum of not just Japanese Christmas, which I tend to view here in the West as being a lot more materialistic, but just Western Christmas as well. I'll elaborate this on a little bit more, but each character represents a part of how we view Christmas internationally through media, through traditions, what have you. And it just flips it upside down perfectly. It's both a Christmas movie and an anti-Christmas movie. Kind of like Violent <laughs> Night, which is my other favorite Christmas movie. And to that, I see the floor. <laughs> it's good. Sarah, how did you get on with uh, Tokyo Godfathers? Yeah, so many years ago, I went to my local library. And back then, they used to have a huge variety of anime uh, from like... 
the big O with like a complete collection of it to even like some random anime movies. And I came across Tokyo Godfathers and there was something about the art design where it kind of drew me to it. Um, so I decided to pick it up and I was just curious and it was late at night and I had some time in between classes while going to college and I decided to watch it and there was just something about it because because yeah it was like you didn't come across really any that many like Christmas specials or Christmas anime movies and there was just something for me that was unique about this because I've come across a lot of Christmas specials in my time a lot of Christmas movies but there was just something that was just very unique like I've never come across a lot of Satoshi Kon's works before um, in my life but I just absolutely loved a lot of the animation just the facial expressions just how he was able to get a lot of the expressions to work in different angles and just convey certain emotions in different areas. And I just also enjoyed just like how he brought in different characters in different points and different, they're going through different things in their lives and how they were able to just come together to help with one singular focus with just helping to find this infant parents and just there was just something about that and just also because um just like how someone was saying earlier with where they were from like i'm from illinois and i used to grow up like an hour north of chicago like hour hour and a half north of chicago so it's like yeah i'm kind of used to that whole dirty gritty feel with like uh, coming across that in the city so it's like but at the same time you can come across where Satoshi Kon uses a lot of that art where you can see some really beautiful things in between like the dirty and the grime. You can see some really beautiful stuff and especially when people might not notice it that much. It's just really beautiful. So I just, I just came across it at the library and watched it for the very first time and I just really enjoyed it, and when I found out that they were re-releasing it, I was just like, oh, heck yeah, I'm just going to go and buy a copy of it because, like, I don't want to miss out on this. <laughs> yeah, it's, so. it's a very well-written story, and, and, the, and the characters are, are, you know, seem quite fully realized, more, you know, than, than perhaps the, I don't want to say the standard anime, or like, but, but perhaps oh, yeah. more than many movies in general, um, I think. Oh, that, yeah. uh, and as deceptively simple as, this, as essentially the story is, of what the characters are kind of tasking themselves to do. I think, you know, beyond that, it, it, at really at no point could I tell, could I second guess where they were going to end up or where, what, the, what was going to happen next to these, these folks. I found that, um, you know, more compelling than, than sometimes the stuff they'll usually, one might usually see. As I say, whether it's anime or just a regular movie. Um, yeah. You know. <laughs> so my first encounter with Tokyo Godfathers was not with Tokyo Godfathers itself. I was curious because not too far away from me in New York City, they were showing a little animated feature called Paprika. And they said that it was the latest from the mind of anime director 
Satoshi Kone. And I'm like, Satoshi Kone, where do I know that name from? And I looked him up on Anime News Network because at the time I was one of few people who always checked to see who directed the anime that they were watching. And he directed another film called Perfect Blue. And I knew of Perfect Blue because I heard a panel that Monica Rial was at and Monica Rial said that Perfect Blue was her favorite anime movie. And so I said, ah, okay, this guy's kind of legit. So I went to see Paprika in the theater with my mom. This is about the time I got my learner's permit. And we both enjoyed it. So I wouldn't say I was curious about what else Satoshi Kona had to offer until one night I was looking at the IMDb Top 100 Movies page. And they will always have a Top 100 for every separate category. Top 100 Action Movies, Top 100 Romance Movies, and sure enough, they had one for Animation. And you got your usual suspects in there. Your Golden Age Disney movies, your Disney Renaissance films, stuff from like Europe, Shrek, the films of Studio Ghibli. But there were a few other anime movies in there that were by Satoshi Kon. All four of his films made the IMDb Top 100. And I'm like, I will give these movies a shot. And I remember I first watched Tokyo Godfathers when it was airing for free on Stars here in America. Because I guess Manga Entertainment had the license for a time. Eventually, I did get the DVD, watched it, and enjoyed it. I enjoyed the film for its message, its animation, and of course, just the roller coaster of emotions it takes the viewer on. It wasn't until recently that I've gone and re-watched the film. I've seen this film like dozens of times. And it speaks to the quality of a film when each time I watch it, I kept noticing something new. A new theme I never thought of. Something that I read a little more into. And for this episode, I really wanted to do my research on it. So I bought the physical Blu-ray, which is available from G-Kids, with an all-new English dub. And... I could tell that Satoshi Kone poured his heart out into it. As you guys said, it's a very heartfelt movie. I don't agree with the idea that it's anti-Christmas, and we'll have to talk about Japan's attitude towards Christmas when we get to the primetime discussion. But my general review of it is, it's a heartwarming, kind of dark comedy film for Christmas time, that really is a film all about redemption and ultimately a movie that asks you to care about those who need it the most during the most holy time of the year. But now that we've discussed our first initial experience, let's start as always with animation. Now, we'll go to Aaron because he's our outsider. You're mostly familiar with with anime through things like the stuff you've done voiceover for. Your Anime News Network page says that you've done stuff for, like, Future Card Buddy Fight. You are Masamune Kido in World Trigger. You've done Beatamon and, and uh, of course, Captain Dice and Conan. What did you think of the animation in Tokyo Godfathers compared to some of the other stuff you've encountered? Well, I thought it was very good. I thought it was top-notch. And, um, and I say that in somewhat deference to you folks who... I've seen so much more than I have, um, because I'm much more, I'm much more newer to it. But, um, but I thought it was, I thought it was great. Uh, and in particular, 
maybe I'm getting too specific with this, but I, I was I was impressed with sort of the coins and the cake, if I can use that phrase, which maybe is lost on a younger generation. When I was a kid, sometimes your parents would bake a cake and put a couple of coins in it. You'd find, presumably, uh, you know, nowadays people would find th that dangerous because everybody somebody would choke on it. But oh. back, uh, it gets another way of saying uh, maybe an Easter egg or something like that. And there's all sorts of in in very often in the backgrounds there's throughout the whole feature it's it's uh you know one one thing springs to mind is, is the the repeated use of 1225 that's sort of hidden in the backgrounds or left as a you know as a date which of course is december 25th is christmas day but you you know you see that on on uh you know some notices or or in a, in a calendar or or the, an address uh time and time again that it's the and I thought that was I thought that was interesting. It, 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 I didn't, and it wasn't something I noticed at first, but you know, probably noticed a, sort of a third of the way through. Ah, this is interesting, you know, and uh, and some of that subtext that, that was that was I thought quite deftly dealt with uh, in the whole movie. So, I found it um, going back to that dark college classroom where I first saw this movie. It looked like daylight coming into that classroom even at its even at its darkest point it was literally daylight it was it's very dynamic it's a lot more dynamic than what you're going to see in a lot of normal anime heck even a lot of anime movies that i noticed uh have come out recently they don't quite match that sense of dynamism that really tells you this is satoshi khan this ain't this ain't your this ain't nobody else. This is Satoshi Khan, and you get that established right early on. It actually helps bring helps make it more real. And I'm trying to like describe it, but literally, it tends to just jump off the screen at times, but also, but also simultaneously, it pulls you in. Um, there are several scenes, especially at the beginning and the end, which I'm really going to not spoil for our audience. But at the end, watching through it, I could literally feel myself feeling like I was right there at that moment. It subconsciously works on both your ability to relate to the setting what you find out and then later what you know about the characters be in it all just sort of comes together and make it it comes together in a way that it's really i'm really struggling to describe it because it it's baltimore it's chicago it's vancouver it's new york it's more than that it's people we know all almost all together in just one mass it actually kind of reminds me of, of um, I'm thinking of Paranoia Agent when I say this, because it's definitely, it's, 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 I love it when a director, you know exactly what you're looking at, and you can tell exactly, you have almost a, vi a, a visual handprint of sorts from the director, and it's one of those movies where I truly felt that. It's like, hi, Satoshi Kon. Or hi there. You can't. You all can't see my hand against my screen, but I want you all to just picture something like that, but an animated form, and it's like that from start to finish. 
because when I first saw it, I sure did not know how it was going to go. I thought mm. it was <laughs> that was one thing, and then it's another. But also, it, the, the movie knows when to both use the dynamism and the color to it's or for the audience to sort of just lose themselves in, and then it just slams you right back into soil. Almost knocked my mic over. And the way it all comes together, honestly, is just so it's just so special for me. I could just gush on it forever. But now I see the floor. <laughs> I really enjoyed the animation. Like for me, I personally love a lot of 2D animation, and this one, it just. I know, like I mentioned earlier about the expressions that Satoshi Kon did, like, especially with a lot of Hannah's expressions, just how some of them just really pop out in certain scenes just made me crack up so hard because there are certain scenes where it would be serious and then some of the comedic scenes would come up and then some of the expressions would just send me just, would just like take me out and I would just start cracking up and laughing so hard where I would not be expecting it. But there would be also like some scenes that would be really realistic. That would be just so mesmerizing and so pretty where it would just be just kind of like, it would just be very mesmerizing and just really gorgeous with a lot of the animation and just how realistic that he was able to bring just like a lot of the different things sorry um i'm trying to figure out the right words to it <laughs> um there are certain moments where it does feel a little bit trippy but it also works really well it might throw you a, just a little bit off in certain scenes but it just really pulls it all together where it just whip you around and be like Okay, here you go. Whoopsie daisy, here you go. Sit back down. It's really pretty. It's like, okay, this is gorgeous. Like, I don't know what just happened, but okay, I am here for this. Sorry if that sounded a little bit confusing, but uh like Oh, I think it. For me, I good. I absolutely love the animation and especially now in a time like with everything with a lot of 3D animation and with a lot of stuff going on in theaters, it's honestly just nice and refreshing to go back and watch a lot of 2D animated stuff because it just feels just nice and refreshing to the soul for me. I, I thought as I watched it too, you know, I thought, you know, this this is really well written and enough, and the characters are have enough depth that I thought to myself, I, you could do this. Could it be made as a as a as a dramatized film with you know living actors in it, um, you could, but I I would wonder if it would have the same. Um, and there's certainly capable directors and, and cinematographers out there that can handle the more surreal elements of the story of that story and, and do it justice. But I I thought to myself, I was sort of almost sort of testing myself as I watched it. I thought, could this be done as a as a dramatized film? And I, and I, in the beginning, I thought it could, but maybe by the end of it, I wasn't. I wasn't so sure. It feel it seems to exist for what it is so well in in the merits of of, of animation that uh, perhaps the in, in as much as yes the 
characters are well written enough they would resonate in a real story in a and I say a real story with a dramatized story with living actors. I don't know if it would maybe have the same charm or something if it was done that way and it and maybe it needs to stay as a, as a as an animated feature like that. Now it's funny, Aaron. I actually had that same thought as well. I mean, yeah. I mean, I think it could work as a live action film, but also I'm like, eh, I don't know. It would it would it would be ungodly hard. Then again, Perfect Blue's live action counterpart exists. Well, it's funny that you guys say this about it being done as live action, because I'm going to open my views on the animation of Tokyo Godfathers with a quote from Animation Snob, and I do mean Snob Amid Amidi, who had this to say in his write-up of Tokyo Godfathers. <clears throat> Like Satoshi Kon's earlier film, Millennium Actress, this opening night film of the festival also whisked me away into a deep slumber. But that's not the surprise. Following the film, I ran into animation legend Ray Harryhausen at the opening night party, and we chatted for a bit. He asked me what I thought about Tokyo Godfathers, and I admitted that I fell asleep during the film. Ray then gave me his review of the film and, in the process, showed me why he's a legend, because he has great taste. Ray said that there was absolutely no reason to produce Godfathers in animation because it didn't take advantage of the medium. He also pondered why the filmmakers had designed all the characters to be so unappealing and ugly. I didn't think there was any way I could have more respect for Ray Harryhausen than I already did, but he showed me a way. <clears throat> so, uh, <laughs> I don't think I have anything else to say other than, what a load of crap! Yeah! <laughs> it's like, like, these characters are more realistic to a lot of people that we'll see, like, day to day. Like, what got up this guy's... Yeah. What? <laughs> Sorry. Just trying to cut... What was this guy writing? Did, did he watch this movie? <laughs> Apparently not. Well, he it said he fell it asleep doesn't, I don't... it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me that maybe an old hand like Harryhausen wouldn't see would view it as grotesque or something like that. But like I say, it, 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 you know, when we were talking about a couple of us had sentiments that it was sort of an anti-Christmas. I, I shouldn't, I, I don't want to have it stand as that as an anti-Christmas story, but it's sort of a darker Christmas. I would compare it to, let's say, you know, the Pogues fairy tale in New York. That's sort of an anti-Christmas uh, story, or at least it's a darker <laughs> Uh, side of Christmas, and again, I, I would cite uh, you know the Junkies Christmas, the William S. Burroughs story. That I think Francis Ford Coppola uh, did that with, uh, uh, or was involved in, at least as a producer. And it's as a short you can find on YouTube very easily. But uh, uh, one of those stories that that uh, you know it, it has some grotesque elements and it, and it shows the darkness maybe of the holiday season more than more than some others. But I, I can I can see perhaps you know some some of the old guard viewing viewing this as. Uh, and not liking it, you know, because it had, it, it would, I don't think it, it, it's very different, even, you know, on, on so many different levels, not just the, the way that the story is told. 
And I don't think it's necessarily it didn't use animation. I mean, there's a lot of things, especially in the subtext and the backgrounds that go on. Some of the lights in the buildings turning off and on and things like this that sort of have relevance to what's happening in the foreground. And that's just, maybe that's just pure cinema in the end, but um, that, that, their comments seem to give it unnecessarily short shrift. I'm glad that you brought this up, Aaron, about it possibly being done as live action because... Justin, you touched on how you know that this is a Satoshi Kon film. Satoshi Kon kind of faced a similar pushback with Perfect Blue. The producers initially envisioned Perfect Blue, since it was based on a novel, as being a live-action project. But Satoshi Kon pushed back on them by saying that he wanted it to be an animated feature because there are things you can do with animation that you can't do with live-action film. And I think of the four films that Satoshi Kon has made, this is his most grounded. But I also think it's a great example to show that you can tell simple stories like this one using animation as opposed to just doing it live action. One of the reasons why Satoshi Kon said that he wanted to do this as an animated feature was because it features the homeless as a subject matter. And I don't know if you guys are aware of this, but uh, like every other major metro city, Japan has homeless too. You've talked about, Sarah, you live near Chicago. Aaron, you live in Vancouver. Justin, you live in Baltimore. I live near Jersey City, Newark, New York City, and Patterson. And believe me, I see this stuff all the time. And it's not pretty to look at, especially in real life. And Satoshi Kon said that he wanted to make this movie in animated form. He figured that it's easier for people to accept the homeless if, you know, they're cartoon characters or something like that. It's easier for folks to digest in this form. And Satoshi Kon did his research about the homelessness. Him and his staff went to various homeless encampments through the various parks in the suburbs of Tokyo... They took photos and videos of the homeless for reference. They studied what they had to go through and so on. And to sort of hammer home the idea of this being referenced by live action, Satoshi Kon, I believe his wife Kyoko, and animation director Kenichi Konishi dressed up as the three main characters from the film. Kyoko dressed up as Miyuki, Kenichi Konishi dressed up as Gin, and Satoshi Kon dressed up as Hana. And they walked around a park, being photographed, showing the animators how they want these characters to pose, what sort of faces they can make, how they want the characters to look, their outfits, and so forth. It didn't, That's quite interesting. It didn't need to be live action, but it does use a lot of live action, both filmed by the people and other films, as inspiration. I think the only other major movie about homelessness that springs to mind outside of Tokyo Godfathers that came out before this was Terry Gilliam's The Fisher King, which, surprise, surprise, Satoshi Kon was a big Terry Gilliam fan. I honestly think that you couldn't do this as live action, and if you did, you lose a lot of the charm to it. Part of the reason why all of these live action Disney remakes don't work is because it feels like animation is not good enough. For the stuffed suits that greenlight these movies. 
Disney, the people who make these movies, seem to, like, look down on Disney's animated pass, even though stuff like Snow White, Beauty and the Beast, Sleeping Beauty, Pinocchio, and so on, are milestones in animation. And when you have critics that ask, why don't he just do it in live action, I feel that those critics kind of miss the point on what makes a Satoshi Kon film a Satoshi Kon film. He uses a lot of live-action references for his ideas, but the way these characters move, the way their faces contort and are distorted, the way, like, their movement is just so over-exaggerated, you could not do this in live-action. And as Aaron said, there's all sorts of fun little Easter eggs in the background. The one that everyone will obviously point to is that Hana is standing in front of a video store, and the posters behind her are for Satoshi Kon's two previous movies, Perfect Blue and Millennium Actress. My favorite little Easter egg, though, it's the scene where Gin is fighting the teenage rebels in the park, and if you look carefully at the lights in the building behind them, they will turn on or off depending on when Genji gets hit. They arranged the building lights to look like health bars in a fighting video game. I didn't realize someone that. Actually, someone actually that in that in a college actually brought that up and started laughing about it randomly. Half the people, half the people in there were like, "Why the heck? Like, why are you laughing at that?" And then when he when he pointed out, it was like in the back of the room. Everyone, and then that group of people. We're like, oh, wow, wait a minute. Of course, one other signature that you will find with this film when it comes to the animation is Satoshi Kon's signature editing style. While he doesn't blur the lines between fantasy and reality like he does in most of his other works, he does make clever use of space and time and imagery. One of my favorite bits of this is in the beginning. It's a match cut where Gin is talking about his days as a cyclist. And when he's talking about it, the camera dissolves from his face to that of him on a bicycle. Um, I think also the one where it showed the flashback with Hana in the oh. nightclub uh, singing. Yeah, that's another yeah, one. I was going to say that one. Tokyo Godfathers may not be Satoshi Kon's most visually dazzling film, but it shows that even when he's grounded, he can still do amazing things. And part of the reason why he made this film also was to sort of show people a side of Tokyo that goes unseen. He's told stories about when he took this film to Big Apple Anime Festival back in 2003, that there were people who were coming up to him and saying, I had no idea that Japan had homeless people. Japan does have homelessness, they just do a better job of hiding it than other cities do. We're still saying that about Japan to this day. Mm -hmm. There's probably a couple people in our audience who are going to hear that, and they're going to be floored, and it's like, yeah. Even in the age of YouTube, people surprisingly don't know that fact, which is a little sad, but also kind of mind-blowing. And I think also the balance of taking us all around Tokyo, from the parks of Shinjuku to the neon-lit main streets, to the dimly-lit back alleys. It makes Tokyo feel less like it's a tourist attraction and more like it's a real place where people live. 
It's not just some yeah. city. There's plenty of films that show off the dark side of New York City. You don't get too many films, at least anime, that show off the dark side of Tokyo. I guess that helps the, that helps with the actually that actually goes to the extra mile in the relatability factor. Because yeah, it's not some faraway wonderland of nerd paradise. It's it's just like New York, DC and uh, I said DC. <laughs> Let me take that out. It's like New York, Baltimore, uh New York, Baltimore, Chicago, Vancouver. Did I miss anybody except DC? Los Angeles, San Diego, Dallas, Miami, Atlanta, Montreal. Shanghai. Oh yeah, Montreal. How did I forget <coughs> Montreal? Oh, and Ottawa. Hey, don't forget yeah, Trana. I mean, don't forget Trana. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's that that's that's uh, you know I I often get into you know debates with People in my city of a certain vintage who say, oh, the city's gone to hell now. Look at the homeless. Well, we've always had them to a certain extent. But and it seems like in this post-COVID world, we've maybe that, that seems to have sort of gotten worse uh, in, in many cities. Uh, and that's sort of the same. You know, it's, it, you're right. It's, you know, while the, our crime statistics may differ in between, you know, Baltimore and Vancouver, uh, certainly we get only about... Uh, maybe a baker's dozen of homicides here a year. Uh, you know, the homeless situation is, is that's what everybody talks about right now. And that's what they talk about in San Francisco. That's what they talk about in Seattle and all the way, all the, along the West coast, all over. I mean, in, in my tours, when I was in bands playing in Europe, I, I would see it all the time in Helsinki, you know, in Copenhagen. And uh, so it's, it's kind of foolish that we would assume that uh, a city of any reasonable size would not have any homelessness. And, uh, you know, certainly watching the, watching the film, one is given to think these people you pass by on the street that are sleeping rough and down their luck, I mean, they, you know, they have their own stories too. And, and that's, I think that's what's shown, you know, and as written very well uh, in this. Another reason why Satoshi Kon wanted to do this as an animated feature as opposed to it being live action the weather. Believe it or not, it does not snow in Tokyo. It's just somewhat not surprising. Some, like, have emphasis on somewhat. I have heard it snowing in Japan before, but Tokyo, I would, I would imagine, is pretty, pretty rare. It snows in Japan's northern provinces, like Hokkaido and Sendai and what have you. But around Tokyo, they don't really get much snow. It's kind of like the climate of New Jersey in these past few years. We get some snow, but like you're not going to get high accumulation right now. Japan, or Tokyo I should say, has very mild winters. Lots of rain, some mist, fog, and so forth. Maybe a dusting of snow now and again, but you're not going to get a full-bore blizzard. And so Satoshi Kon said... If it doesn't snow in Tokyo too often, then we can just animate this rather than have to do it as live action. And having watched the behind-the-scenes featurettes, boy, oh boy, they said that that snow was hard to animate. Which I find rather surprising. But also, then again, it's got that... It, it had to always have that Satoshi Khan effect to it. Sorry, but at the same time with... Uh... 
uh, for me because I also love uh, studying about weather. It's like, um, I can understand them finding that hard with like uh, trying to animate all of that snow because like uh, not every snowflake is the same and yeah, that's a lot of snow. So props to them for doing all that work. I think we've talked at length about animation. I don't think we're going to have too much to say about the soundtrack. It's not a very Christmassy soundtrack. I honestly think the Tokyo Godfather soundtrack is its weak point, but that's not to say the soundtrack is bad. It's just, I don't really remember too many tracks from it. I mean, exactly ZZ Top with a bell effect thrown over it like in a 90s Disney movie. No, it certainly isn't, although it's very much filled with sort of ragtime or Dixieland-sounding tracks. Something that sounds like some 40s blues songs. Yeah, I pretty much agree about that. I mm -hmm. don't really remember a lot of the music from that, except for, like, maybe a few notes here and there for, like, some comedic effect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just kind of... It's just kind of there... Especially looking back on it, I don't, like, yeah, it didn't leave that much of a heavy impression on me. It just was a it was a conveyor belt to war for the rest of the action, in visuals, if you will. It's kind of like Ringo Starr's drumming. It's played for the scene rather than something that's meant to be listened to on its own. Oh, that's a hell of a way to put it, yeah. And in that regard, I think it uses its music very effectively in that regard. We're not talking incidental background music. This isn't a big epic score by somebody like Kohei Tanaka or Yuki Kaijura. In fact, the composer for this is actually a guy who does live action films, and that's Keiichi Suzuki. He did the live action Uzumaki film, the 2003 Zatoichi film. His most recent work was Last Letter, but... The thing that he is most known for is not what you would expect. He was the composer for Earthbound. Didn't see that coming. It's funny because Earthbound's music is so much fun and memorable, but again, that's for a video game where the music is meant to be played in certain towns, certain battles, certain story beats. Whereas with the movie, you can clearly tell that he wrote the score with the movie in mind or the story in mind rather than just it being made to sell soundtracks one observation i do have though i can compliment the movie for its use of box ode to joy the most grossly overplayed piece of classical music across any medium <laughs> yet it uses the cue of ode to joy just so beautifully just in a way that you wouldn't expect it. Like, there's a nice little Irish folky sounding it when our three main characters are in that convenience store. I think my favorite usage of it, though, in the film... Like, it's played three times. Once in the convenience store, and the other moment is when we hear the actual Ode to Joy, but it's not during a big climactic moment. It's played during an emotional bit with Gin in the hospital. And it's not even, like, up front and center blaring out of your speakers. It's played quietly in the background, understated, showing that this is a big moment for our character, but not for the audience. It's not a get-up-out-of-your-seats kind of usage of Ode to Joy is what I'm saying, but 
the most significant usage of it is, of course, during the end credits. Check the comment section of Ode the Joy video on YouTube. Chances are you're going to have at least one comment about this movie. To go back to animation, Satoshi Kon probably saw that movie Lost in Translation starring Bill Murray, and he saw how the movie used Tokyo as a character to convey emotions throughout the film, and he thought to himself, I can take this one step further. And so for the end credits, he makes the buildings of Tokyo dance to a <laughs> reggaeton remix of Box Ode to Joy. Again, Which is also fun and trippy, and it kind of throws you a bit off, but it's also like, okay, this is also fun. Also known as, am I too, did I drink, did I drink too much eggnog at this point? What? Wait, what? <laughs> it's like, who spiked my eggnog? <laughs> hey, you don't need no eggnog in order to enjoy Satoshi Kon's work. So let's go on to voice acting, and people will probably ask me why I keep doing the whole Say You Spotlight segment, and, well, that's because, one, I hear it on the Anime Nostalgia podcast, which is where I get it from, and two, I like voice acting trivia, especially for Say You. It's always fun to know who voiced what and so forth. As for our main trio, I don't have much to say there, because these are not voice actors by trade. These people came from live action. Miyuki is voiced by Aya Okamoto, and she was handpicked by Satoshi Kon to be Miyuki. Satoshi Kon saw her in, I think, the movie Ogya. I'd have to double-check the feature, but as soon as he heard her speak, he thought to himself, That voice! That voice right there! That's the woman that I want to be Miyuki. And so, he cast her in. If you look up the behind-the-scenes segment, which is on YouTube... She actually gets to interview Satoshi Kon in the behind-the-scenes segment, and she talks about her experience working with Satoshi Kon, and Satoshi Kon in those interviews just comes off as the nicest guy ever. Like, all footage I've seen of Satoshi Kon, just, he seemed like such a great guy to work with, with such a fun sense of humor, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Toru Emori voices Gin. He has appeared in many different samurai dramas and was the voice of Faust in Adieu Galaxy Express 3-9 and would later appear in the final Satoshi Kon film. He's Dr. Inui in Paprika. Yoshiaki Umegaki plays Hana. I couldn't find too much about him. He's mostly known for his roles in J-dramas and in comedies. Among the other cast, though, is where we actually have some pretty big names. You know the baby, Kyoko? Well, that's not, like, stock baby crying sound effects. She's actually voiced by a woman named Satomi Kurogi, who has made a whole career out of voicing cute animals in anime, including Togepi and Pichu in Pokemon, Menchi in Excel Saga, Chuchu in Revolutionary Girl Utena, Chi in Chi's Sweet Home, and uh, she is the most adorable critter in anime history, Nina Tucker in Full Metal Alchemist. Oh, God. <laughs> you did not have to go <laughs> I just I did. Not ex I was not yeah, expecting Chi's Sweet Home to be in here. <laughs> hey, she's also May in the Guilty Gear series. I also did not expect to hear that here. 
<laughs> that was very clever, Nate. <laughs> oh my gosh. Aaron, if you don't know why we're laughing, it's better off that you don't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Speaking I'll check of... the show notes later. <laughs> Speaking of big name Seiyu, there's another girl in this named Kyoko. Won't say what her significance is. But she was an early role for one Mamiko Noto, who would go on to voice Kotomi Ichinose in Clanad, Sawako in Kimini Todoke, which recently got an English dub, Ai Enma in Hellgirl, Fuka in Persona 3, a little timely there. One of my favorite roles of hers was being Masane Amaha in Witchblade. And you might have recently heard her as Prospera Mercury in Gundam, the Witch from Mercury. And speak of the devil, the day that we're recording this, February the 6th, is her birthday. So happy birthday, birthday to one of our modern happy goats. Birthday. Little rapid fire here, speaking of scenes at the hospital, there's a doctor voiced by Akio Otsuka, who would also go on to be in Paprika as Detective Konokawa. I've talked about Akio Otsuka many times before, and I'll just list off his roles quickly. Solid Snake. Dr. Blackjack, Bato and Ghost in the Shell, All for One in My Hero Academia, the current voice of Jigen in Lupin the Third, and Yujiro Hanma. Our antagonist, if you want to call her that, Sachiko, is voiced by Kyoko Tarase. Her only notable role is being Meryl in the Metal Gear Solid series. Her bumbling husband, Yasuo, is played by Hiroya Ishimaru. He is best known as Koji Kabuto in the Mazinger series. You may have also heard him as Sengoku in Cyber City, Apachai in Kenichi, the Mightiest Disciple, Lei Wulong in Tekken, and the Japanese voice of Rodimus Prime. Two quickie roles for me. Seizo Kato voices Mother, the owner of the gay bar. He's the Japanese voice of Megatron. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't ready for wow. that. Wow. And lastly, Miyuki's father is voiced by Yusaku Yara, who I know best as being the narrator in Legend of the Galactic Heroes, and Breton in Dominion Tank Police, as well as Taki in Wicked City. Now, on for the English dub, and Aaron, you seem eager to talk about it, so I'll give it over to you. Well, I, I, I'm not familiar who, who the actors are. Um, I, uh, I figured I'd... Let uh, you, you need to fill me in on that. But I thought they did a great job, particularly the actor who uh, who played Gin. I thought with um, sort of led, had the right sort of Tom Waitsy and gruff to his voice to do it. But <laughs> it, it, you could see at moments that it's when he's brought back to another time, he tempers that, and and uh, when he's reminiscing about something, his voice becomes a little softer and more youthful and, and whatnot. I, I I thought he, in particular he did a good job, but they all did. Uh, they were all very good at it. I said that this was an all-new English dub. And I say that because when this was first released on DVD here by Sony Pictures, it was sub-only. It didn't get an English dub. And I was hoping that somebody would pick it up and give it a proper English dub. And for a while, I actually had my own little mock cast on the brain as to who should play who. I always felt that Gin should have been voiced by John DiMaggio, Julianne Taylor as Miyuki, and Crispin Freeman as Hana. And no, I just didn't make that up off the top of my head. Crispin Freeman 
who is a very well-established voice actor here in America, loves Hana, and he said that it would be his dream role. Now, they didn't get Crispin Freeman as Hana. He is in the dub, though, but the dub, when it was finally released on home video, was done by the New York and California-based NYAV Post, founded by a guy who is an absolute legend, Mike Sinter Nicholas. Mike Sinter Nicholas is a star behind the microphone for American cartoons, for anime, audiobooks, video games, you name it, he's done it all. He acts, he does scripts, he directs, he does practically everything. This guy is awesome. His studio was the one that was behind the dub for the last Miyazaki film, The Boy and the Heron. And by the way, I saw recently, it's one of my favorite animated films of all time. Oh, it's great. It is. It's great. It's really good. And he got a lot out of the celebrity voice actors that were in there. I sent Aaron a story about how impressed he was with Robert Pattinson as the uh, titular Heron. Yeah, I I didn't actually actually couldn't tell it was Robert Pattinson until I had to read the credits. I was like, holy crap, how? But I'm getting off track here because Mike Sinter Nicholas, if you see his name as your director, you're in for a treat. I think his most well-known role to non-anime fans was that he was the voice of Dean Venture in the Venture Brothers. And he was also Leonardo in the 2003 Ninja Turtles series. So... Actually, I got to meet him at OMGCon back in 2019, and he's actually a really sweet person to meet. If you ever get a chance to meet him at a convention, definitely do that. He's an absolute sweet person. Uh, I was actually one of the only people there at the convention um, during the whole weekend to bring something Venture Brothers themed uh, for one of my friends. And he was really excited to cite something Venture Brothers themed. (laughs) Hey, if you bring a voice actor something that they may not be well known for or something that only they remember, they'll be your friend for life. Oh, yeah. But definitely an absolute sweet person. So, yeah, it it was like, it was amazing. (laughs) As for who the voice actors were, Gin was voiced by John Avner. I think his most well-known role to dub watchers was that He was the leader of the God Hand in Berserk, Void. And I think that's him as the narrator in the beginning of Berserk. You know, in this world is one man's fate decided by his own hand or by the predetermined will of a greater God. You know, that guy at the beginning. Miyuki is voiced by Victoria Grace. She's been in a few anime movies that... I have not seen. I know that she was the titular Mirai in Mirai. You can also hear her as the elf in the reverse isekai series, Uncle from Another World. But Hana, though, is special. Mike Sinter Nicholas has made it a point, and you can read interviews with him about this, when it comes to inclusive casting. When he was casting roles for the movie A Silent Voice, one of the major characters in that movie is a deaf girl. And so Mike Sinter Nicholas recruited a deaf actress to play that character. When it came to Tokyo Godfathers, given that Hana is transsexual, although that is a subject that is up for debate online that I'm not going to get into, he wanted a trans actress to play Hana. 
And so the person he got was trans actress Shakina Nafak. Do any of you know who she is? No. It's actually the first I've heard from her, period. And I gotta say, I'm impressed. I thought she did a really good job. Oh, I have nothing but praise for Shakina Nafak as Hana. Like, for somebody who's an outsider, and apparently she knew about the movie before she was cast. Like, when Mike Sinter Nicholas phoned Shakina Nafak, or I think he, he like, like just walked up to her and said, Hey, uh, we're casting for Tokyo Godfathers. Would you be interested in Hana? She just leapt at that opportunity. And when it comes to her performance, the best way I can describe it is that Shakina Nafak just takes the ball and runs it right into the end zone as Hana. She is fantastic as Hana. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no question. To the point, I would like to add this to the point where, like, what she what she did with Hana, it actually felt, I'm going to be honest, it felt more personal to me than, like, you're reading off the Japanese cast, and having seen the movie in Japanese, I, I actually, this is where I would think that the English dub made it a bit more personal, at least in my opinion going the extra mile to cast a trans person in that role, it helped, uh, we were talking about how grounded the story is earlier, and that's how you do it. This was, uh, that's how you do it. Because, I'm, and also I'm just going to say it, I kind of wish I had more trans friends like Hana. She absolutely kills it. I get the feeling that Hana was a very personal character for Shakina, because the Japanese actor, Yoshinari Umegaki, he's a comedian. And given that Hana is a comedic character, you know, he probably just didn't think much of Hana's trans connotations. But Shakina has that personal connection to Hana, and that's what makes her performance so great. Couldn't have said it better myself, man. And we've also got some pretty notable actors uh, in the supporting roles, like Ota, the big fat guy that gets trapped under his vehicle. He's voiced by my favorite English dub voice actor, Jameson Price. And also Crispin Freeman has a cameo in this as Miyuki's father. The MVP, though, goes to the voice actress for the baby Kyoko. Because again, they could have used stock crying for her, but instead, they got Kari Walgren to voice the baby. How appropriate that uh, that we're recording this right next to my collection of Rick and Morty stuff. But she was in Rick and Morty? Oh, yeah. Pretty know- big role, yeah. I only know her as being Haruka from uh, Furikuri and also Saber, among other roles. I know her as being salty. doing for the past couple years. You're good, you're good. I know her as being salty and Dororora. Either way, though, it is a fantastic English dub. I prefer the Japanese, but not by much. It's just a case where it's the version that I'm the most used to. Because, again, that old Sony DVD was sub-only. But now that I have the option for an English dub, I can watch that too. And it's mostly thanks to not just a great cast, but also the excellent direction of Mike Sinter Nicholas. So now we're moving into what I call primetime discussion. We've talked about how Tokyo Godfathers is kind of a 
dark side of Christmas sort of movie, and I talked about how it was a remake of John Ford's Three Godfathers. At its core, in a mix of light and shadow, at the end of the day, Tokyo Godfathers is the story of three people, a surly man, a transsexual, and a teenage runaway trying to do the right thing on Christmas, finding an abandoned baby at the city dump and trying to find its parents. That's the core of Tokyo Godfathers. Three people with nowhere to go trying to do right on the most holy time of the year. Now, Aaron, you said that this felt like it was a satire of Christmas or like showing off like the darker side of the commercialization of Christmas? Yeah, I think it, it has that element to it. I wouldn't say necessarily it's an anti-Christmas movie, but, you know, certainly, you know, depicting any Christmas story that you're going to set with the backdrop of people in a homeless situation or an unhoused situation, I guess the proper term is for it now, it has that. And, and you know, the, the, the consumerism of, of Christmas and maybe, and you know, this isn't, uh, you know, scenes around the dinner table with the, by a hearth, you know, it's, it's a pretty cold and lonely element to it. You know, like uh, even the streets, which largely are at night, there's some, there's some stuff in the day, of course, but, you know, there's not people out singing your Christmas caroling. It's pretty, it's a pretty cold uh, lonely thing. Not many people except young kids beating up homeless people out on the street. So that, well, that's why I wanted to temper my remarks earlier to say it's not, I wouldn't say it's an anti-Christmas movie, but it, it's it's the darker side of the holidays. I think part of your your perception of that comes from cultural differences with how we celebrate Christmas here in the West versus Christmas in Japan. Because in the West, Christmas is a religious holiday celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ on December the 25th. And while Christmas has gotten commercialized over the years, that celebration of Christ is still a core focus of it in the West. In Japan, though, Christmas is 100% a commercial holiday, because even though there are some Christians in Japan, most of the celebration for Christmas is getting together with your family, going out with your date to like a movie or a fancy restaurant, buying Christmas cake for those who are close to you, listening to Wham's Last Christmas on repeat, which is Japan's favorite Christmas song for some reason, and also eating lots of KFC. Because, yes, folks, eating KFC is a Christmas tradition in Japan because Japan loves KFC. <laughs> oh, yeah. oh, boy. I have opinions on this, but I don't want to. I don't want to get us booted off iTunes. I don't think that Satoshi Kone meant for this to sort of poke fun at Christmas being a commercial holiday. He made it so that he could draw attention to the issue of homelessness, something that he felt didn't get too much attention. But the way he goes about it, he's not like shoving it in your face as to just how hard these homeless people have it. It's just gently massaged into his narrative. It's just, these are the things that these three characters have to go through in their lives. But for this one moment, they're trying to do the right thing. Satoshi Kon makes it very easy to root for these three people who have nowhere to go and really nothing but each other. I guess it's my turn. Uh, so... Actually, I was going to say this, 
That's actually something to me that I think is the reason I would say, like when I said earlier, that it takes a lot of Christmas conventions and kind of socks it in the nuts is because of that. Because that is a, it's both a, homelessness is a, I'm going to be honest, homelessness is a, a, is a topic that doesn't really, that you don't really see a lot of in traditional Christmas media, even here in the West. Yes, here in the West, it's a religious holiday, for sure, but also it's a subject matter that's both seasonally appropriate and for a lot of non-religious Christmas platitudes that get thrown around in Western holiday specials like the Ed and Eddie episode that I was just watching earlier where they had a, it was Christmas in July themed. It was fa-la-la-la-la and I got the title by too many laws, but that's beside the point. Um, basically, they, they poke fun of a lot of Christmas platitudes in that episode, and only enough, not any one of those actually deals with the holidays ever being rough for other people or just homelessness in general that, frankly, I don't think we'll ever see here out in the West since seasonal media is starting to unfortunately fall into a bit of a fall in a bit of a formula which is what makes this movie so impactful all these years later it's that it does not try to do anything normal at all or formulaic it actually took me a second to actually call it a christmas movie back then when i first saw it just for that reason because it did not play by any established rules which it's a testament to the amount of conviction and creative freedom that Satoshi Kon brought to what could have otherwise been such a very simple concept. Heck, it samples a couple old movies, and yet you would not know that at all, um, either story-wise or execution-wise. There's a lot that Satoshi Kon says about the underground of Japan, not just with the homeless, but with the character of Hana, who is trans, but, you know, and there's a lot that I want to say about Hana, but I have a whole section of my notes just reserved for her. But I want to stress, Satoshi Kon, regardless of what one may glean with the commentary about Christmas or Japan and, and how it treats its homelessness, Satoshi Kon has denied that he had any sort of agenda when he made this. He just said, you know, this was a movie that I wanted to make. And with how sincere it is and how it portrays it, I believe him. I don't really think that this is Satoshi Kon in any sort of mood other than I'm just making a movie that I want to make and I hope you enjoy it. It can be a bit mean at points. I already mentioned the scene where Gin gets beat up by a bunch of ruffians. But at the same time, its warmest moments are some of its best. It's a roller coaster of emotions, but it never feels jarring at any points. There's a lot of themes to chew on in Tokyo Godfathers. Of course, the center theme is one that, that people seem to be using a lot nowadays, is the found family. The only real thing that our main heroes have are each other, and the dynamic works perfectly, although it's kind of more like a Three Stooges dynamic where... Gin is the Moa the Bunch, Hana is the Curly, who's always making wisecracks and jokes at Gin's expense, 
And Miyuki is the Larry of the trio, in the middle, trying to desperately contain two chaotic forces. You know, it's funny, I actually picked that up on the second time I saw it. And I was like, yeah, this is, it's Three stooges but in the best way. But also, I was like, you know what's weird, though? I actually didn't know how to process it at the time. Not gonna lie to you. It's kind of Three stooges but in a way that defies... Definitely defies expectations. Like, you're not think like, especially with the general color palette of the movie, they're kind of like, how can there be this, like, why is it kind of Three Stooges thing? But it, it makes sense. Somehow it, it makes perfect sense. The colors change with the mood of the movie. The darker scenes that are, like, meant to be cold and brisk have a very dark and washed out color palette. Well, the scenes that are meant to be a little warmer have a warmer color palette to them. Again, this is Satoshi Kon editing the space around you to make you feel a certain way. Something you just simply can't do in live action. There's also themes of rediscovering love lost with the subplot between Sachiko and her husband. I do wish that got fleshed out a bit more. Most of it is explained through the dialogue, which is kind of strange because Satoshi Kon is really good at the art of show-don't-tell. On that point, you can almost make it a small series. You can almost make it a small mini-series um, at that point. So I fine. kind of will actually... Oh, I, I was going to say, I actually kind of forgive him for making... I forgive Satoshi Kon for maybe not fleshing it, going that deep into that end, because A, almost distracts from the main cast and the main story, and B... Eh, the movie the movie would be a whole lot longer and possibly a bit more diluted by doing that, so I'm going to give him a pass. The movie's an hour and a half long, and it just breezes by, but it never feels like it's going too fast for its own good. I was going to say, now you know why a bunch of college kids said, let's watch this on the eve of exams. <laughs> And it also doesn't feel like it overstays its welcome. And also, um, going back a bit to themes, I can also see some themes of, um, with also with like redemption and also with forgiveness, with like, especially with Miyuki and her father, and also with Gin and, you know, um, with some potential spoilers, but I'm not going to go into it. But if you watch it and see it a little further, like, Further down the movie, you'll see what happens. Some stuff that happens regarding with his past and with his family. Oh yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of. Oh, I don't think Satoshi Kon meant for these themes to be religious, but as a guy who is Catholic and works as a lector at his local church, there's a lot of tones of forgiveness and redemption. Hana, in particular, has lived in sin her entire life. One of the most emotional scenes comes very early on where, she's, where we see her holding the baby Kyoko in the snow, reflecting on how Kyoko's really the only thing that she has. She never knew her actual mother, and she spent her whole life just drifting from foster home to foster home. Maybe I'm reading too much into this, but... The owner of the gay bar, the uh, Okama bar that Hana worked at, part of the reason why uh, her nickname is Mother, I get the sense that that is not a title that she is given. 
I think Hana formally refers to that owner as mother because, well, it's probably where Hana spent most of her life. Mm-hmm. Yep. I kind of, I'm going to have to agree with you there. Um, for, yeah, that's, let's just say, let's say, um, that's an abject reality for parts of our country today. Now, one criticism that some have of the writing is that there's a lot of, there's a lot of coincidences in the film that lead our characters from one place to the next. Like, for example, one of the most blatant I can think of is the scene where they're in the cemetery. After their train is delayed because of excessive snow, they walk several miles through the snow and they happen across a cemetery. So they go to that cemetery and Kyoko starts crying because she needs a change of diapers and she has to be fed. And what do they find in the cemetery? Diapers and a can of baby formula. Now, coincidences can be lazy when done poorly, but according to Satoshi Kon, his use of coincidences was intentional. Satoshi Kon effectively stated that that the idea of using these coincidences is that even the smallest coincidence can have greater ramifications. Or, I guess in layman's terms, there's no such thing as coincidences. Boy, howdy, is that true? I mean, with some of the little instances that happen in the movie, with uh, some of the little detours that happen, and some of the little ways that they turn, and then some of the big instances that happen after they turn, it's like, oh boy, yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, it's a good thing they turned in the nick of time. I'm surprised no one said this yet, but... It reminds me a lot of the phrase, it's a Christmas miracle. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that actually gets said. There's so many also great visual gags that I did not pick up on. Like very early on when like Hana is in line at what is effectively a soup kitchen with Gin, Hana tells the woman serving the, the goods that, you know, my dream is to eventually become a mother and, Gin says, ah, you're just a homo, you can't have kids, and believe me when I say that in the original Sony DVD, he called Hana something worse than a, uh, homo, and I'll just leave it at that. But, mm-hmm. we see the that woman later on at the train station, and when she sees Hana holding Kyoko, she looks and says, oh my god, it's a miracle! Oh yeah. <sighs> I was cracking up during that part. That was great. We were all cracking up at that part. <laughs> that's another thing I have to praise Tokyo Godfathers for, and that's, of course, its dialogue. I mentioned a lot about the banter between our three main characters, Miyuki, Gin, and Hana. Their banter is legendary. Of course, Gin can't go five minutes without calling Hana a homo, but I absolutely love how Hana plays off of this, and again, we're saving Hana for later. But there's also some, like, throwaway lines that foreshadow later events. A good example of this is that when Hana declares the baby's name to be Kyoko, we see Gin wince as if he's suffering some sort of trauma from the name being Kyoko. And the first time through, you're like, 
Well, why would he wince at the name Kyoko? Is it, does he not like that name? And then when you later see why, when you discover what the name Kyoko means to him, you just go, oh, okay. That's a pretty good way to put it. Yep. That is a pretty, pretty good way to put it. <laughs> I'm not going to spoil anything. But yeah, the, actually, wait, hold on. I want to do an actual bit on dialogue. That was that stuff is absolutely bulletproof, and that's actually why it took me a very long time to see it in English. Because even I love the is I love the Japanese dialogue. I love it. I love it. I mean, I still love the the uh, dub because of the realism. But holy cow, that was this is some this is some grade A quality banter that people are that um I, i'm a sucker for that whether it's top gear or or it's top gear or um what's it called uh double it was double decker it had that had a lot of a lot of back and forth banter this this movie is actually why i really like <laughs> this movie absolutely is right up there in terms of banter I just have to concur. I thought the dialogue was very fresh, you know, and it felt uh, it felt like it was it was well written. And certainly, in terms of the at least, I'm of course mindful. I'm watching the English language dub. But I thought the translation seemed they worked well with. It didn't seem that who knows what you lose in in, in some translations, and and but uh, it felt uh, it felt very very genuine, which is ultimately what you want dialogue to always be. And a lot of it, of course, is due to the strength not just of director Satoshi Kon, but also the writer Keiko Nobumoto, who, if you watch certain episodes of Cowboy Bebop, you can see a lot of her, you can see a lot of her prose in how these characters interact with one another. Cowboy Bebop is a show where our four main characters all play off one another. The best episodes of Cowboy Bebop, in my humble opinion, Jupiter Jazz features some similar ideas that are featured in Tokyo Godfathers, especially since those episodes feature a man who is transgender, but uh, not by his own choice, which uh, I will not spoil. But Satoshi Kon said that it was working with Keiko Nobumoto that helped give him a greater understanding of writing from a woman's perspective. Because Satoshi Kon is known for featuring female leads in his films, in the case of Miyuki, and we also, and Hana, who is a trans female, but, but again, Nobumoto also has to be praised for her writing. One last line that I like that's foreshadowing, all throughout the movie, Gin talks about how, you know, we're just three bums, we're not action heroes, okay? And what happens at the end of the movie? Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, maybe. Oh, the joy just started playing in my head when you said that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Gin finally gets to be the action hero in one of the greatest chase scenes you will see in anime. Very true. I just mm -hmm. love how crazy it is, although uh, although I get the feeling that that baby has plot armor, but uh, considering that Stoshikon probably doesn't want to harm an infant, I'll let it slide, although... That baby is going to be quite traumatized from that truck accident. He said plot yeah. armor. I was going to go with completely different rules of physics. But of course, I think also we should talk about 
And I think we should start with Miyuki because Miyuki's whole character arc plays into one of the movie's central themes of forgiveness. Miyuki is on the run and we later learn that she ran away from home because she had a falling out of sorts with her father, which we see in a flashback. There's a really great scene at the halfway point where Miyuki tries to call her father, but she just cannot bring up the courage to do it. And by the end of the film, she has learned to both forgive herself and, well, yeah, we are spoiling a good chunk of the movie, but ultimately to forgive her family for how they treated her in that one moment. Ironically, when Aya Okamoto recorded her last line as Miyuki, Satoshi Kon did not give her any directions over what he wanted her to sound like. He just said, let the audience decide how Miyuki feels when she's reunited with her father. Again, it's a very nice show-don't-tell moment. How did you guys get on with Miyuki, though? I... Jeez, I I'm, I love I I honestly I loved her when I was when I first saw this movie. Just throwing it back to all, I'm just throwing it back to all into years ago when I was watching this and um at that college anime club. Everyone in that room actually really loved her because not your well, I should say your teenage typical teenage anime girl. So you got that little bit of different dynamic going on, and then honestly, it was kind of refreshing. At least I thought it was refreshing to see. It's kind of leads into the other two characters. It's kind of refreshing to hear it to have a younger uh deuteragonist. I guess you could say deuteragonist. Let's go with that. Um. Or tritagonist, I guess. A younger tritagonist who, grammar aside, who works well with characters who are not immediately of her station. And also, the irony is her whole plot of running away from her family. I'm dancing around spoilers here. It actually felt really, um, it was refreshing. It was, it was dark. And it's very different. It kind of went places that, a lot of shows don't go, but with a bit of an edge to it, like like a Cowboy Bebop, like a um, like a vintage anime, um, almost where it's where it's not trying to be very poppy or overly obsessed with youth culture, or trying to sell you something. It's called yeah. Here's a kid who ran away from the house and is obviously not spoiling it. And it, it trying to make a go at it with people who are obviously not her age. It's it's very different. Yeah, her story is, in a, perhaps compared to the other two, maybe the most complex. And I, I suspect there may be something I'm not picking up in terms of some Japanese culture references that are individual to her, to her character, or or perhaps just a young teenage. Earl in Japan or something there, but uh, because that she's the you would think that she's the youngest. She's she's got much more of a shot at at getting her life back on track, you know, as opposed to the other two who have been entrenched in that their own worlds for 
some years. So yeah, I, I, I found it interesting too. But I uh, but I wonder if there's some, as I say, there's some some text that I'm not not picking up necessarily that that uh, reinforces something uh, to that effect as well. But uh, well, what what didn't you understand about a Miyuki? It's not that I didn't understand anything. It's just that uh, again, you would you would think that at 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 that point in her life, to suddenly find herself out in the streets. And through the circumstances of what happened, uh, there's there's some complexity of that. I'm not saying it's a simple, simple case, but um, that she would find that she would find herself, and that she's the, sort of the least likely, mostly given by her age, that she would surely that she would be able. I don't know how long it's said or it's indicated how long she's been out there on the streets, but I think she said that she'd been out on the street for like a few like several months or so. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um just that uh just that she sort of finds herself there. And that's there's God knows there's instances in real life of teenage homelessness, of course, you know, whatnot, but uh especially when, you know, given that momentum coming from a, a family dispute or an argument or a you know, kind of a breakdown and what I don't wanna specific or if we give any spoilers away what happens between her and her family but that I, there was i wondered as i say some complexity uh, to that there as well that i that i'm that just might be my feeling you know that uh, i i think my favorite scene involving miyuki is the dream she has when she's been kidnapped by that migrant family because we finally see why she ran away from home and I won't, I'm not going to spoil how the dream ends, but you can clearly tell that deep down she does miss her family. And I think Satoshi Kon implies that, you know, because she's been away from home for almost a year that her family does miss her and they want her back home, not out of anger, but because they're ready to forgive her for what she did. She's just not ready to forgive them. Like, she thinks that she's some sort of streetwise know-it-all, saying, like, you know, I've been on the streets for months. I know what I'm doing now. But deep down, she misses her family. She wants to be back home. And her life on the streets sort of just gave her a new perspective that maybe the grass isn't always greener away from your family. But, you know, by the mm -hmm. end, she learns to appreciate both her found family and her real family. And it's a very wholesome arc. I think for me, I also, I also enjoyed Miyuki with her character, and I can also see why, especially being a teen and going through something like that dispute, and trying to not go into spoilers here, but after a situation like that, and with her dad having a job position like what he has, I can understand why she would run away from home because she'd be scared about being, you know, what would happen to her and not wanting to go back. So I would kind of understand why she would, you know, not want to go back home. And it would take a while for her to feel like she can feel like she can ask for forgiveness from her family. But then seeing what she saw like later on in the movie that her family was wanting to make sure that she was safe wanting her to come back home 
my mom, whenever I don't speak to my mom for like several days, she always calls me and wondering like, Nate, are you okay? Are you okay? Mom, I'm fine. I'm fine. But we all have parents like that. We always have those parents that are always worried about what you're up to and what you're doing and asking why you don't call home more often. And the concerns of Miyuki's family are legitimate. And she may not think of her family that often while out on the streets, but she does miss them. She just doesn't show it. And when she does show it, it's some of the most emotionally impactful scenes in the film. On the opposite end of the spectrum, we have Gin. Gin. Oh boy. Gin. Mm. Gin's an asshole. Let's let, let, let's just make this straight. Gin's an asshole. He's the pessimist <laughs> of the group. Whenever he's faced with any sort of hardship, he's willing to say, "Well, that's it. Let's go home now." I kind of like them. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you love his dumb voice because he sounds like Tom Waits. Well, no, I just I, uh, I I I enjoy I enjoy this pessimism. There's always uh, always good to have one grouser there on on a mission to say, you know, it's uh, it, it, this isn't going to work out. This is this is going to be the end. This it's Bill Paxton and aliens or whatever. It's just <laughs> this, this is a terrible of... idea. Yeah, <laughs> that kind of stuff. No, I I I, 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 I found my sympathies with him. <laughs> as soon as they first find Kyoko, the baby. His immediate reaction is, all right, let's take her to the police. But of course, Hana vetoes that notion simply because Kyoko deserves a home, like proper tender loving care. Lord knows what'll happen if you turn a baby into the police. Gin has a, ha, probably is the highest sense of self-loathing. Like Miyuki has some sense of self-loathing, but she kind of hides it beneath a confident veneer. A memorable scene involving Gin is when he goes to the police saying, yeah, hi, I'd like to uh, bring some trash to you guys. And he just brings like, and he just puts himself in front of a garbage can, just referring to himself as he's just a bum. And that's all he ever sees himself as. He's no good. He's, he's two things, no good and good for nothing. <laughs> and yet, by the end, you can't help but root for them. He's an asshole, but he's a lovable asshole. He's the Bill <laughs> Murray of our trio. Right? Full grouchy. Well, Bill Murray can do grouchy too, and I got that vibe from him immediately. I also was going to say that uh, imitation, that Jersey accent was perfect. <laughs> Uh, that always derailed my entire point. <laughs> okay, now I got it back. So, yeah, Gin's, uh, he's definitely a man who's been beat down. And I'm like, yeah, uh-huh, it, it, it all checks out. Your current situation, your old situation, it, it checks out. He reminds me a lot of, like, you got a, you got a lot of different types of homeless people, especially out in uh baltimore you got the you got people who are there by circumstances outside of their own control people there who are homeless because of bad decision making and then you got I mean, well essentially just those are essentially the two groups i'm going to focus on getting to me represents uh people 
like group number one. They're clearly not people who like some happens outside of their outside of their control. But but this group are also very cynical and inherently not very sure if there's really a a, a way back. Gin to me embodies that so much. Just the cynical I don't know if there's a way back to being productive again way. And to me, it kind of felt like a lot of the movie's events actively trying to dispute that. Like, hey, you're not actually trash. You're you're not total, utter trash. There's, act, there's value in everybody. He's a hobo with a heart of gold. Exactly, exactly. He's the kind of guy who... And he's the kind of guy who people who wrote people wrote railroad tunes with and wrote railroad tunes about back in the 30s, which I find endlessly amusing. Oh, I maybe I've said all I can say about him uh, from, just from my earlier comments. I was going to say you talk about the movie giving him chances to redeem himself. Look at the scene where he meets the elderly homeless guy, which I read one blog saying that that guy is meant to be a manifestation of God? And I'm like, no, that's not how I interpreted it to him. He's just some guy who's, he's, he's the mental sort of homeless. Yeah, and he's, he's maybe Gin's future, you know, yeah, as well, if he, if he continues I mean, on the same road. His own ghost of Christmas yet to come, shall we say. There we go. Mm-hmm. I also like that because that's an, that has another bit of clever foreshadowing when he tells Gin... Don't tell anybody who I am. And you don't know what that is until the very end of the movie in a twist where you just go, Ah, I should have known. Gin, by the end, you come to love him. Gin, at the end of the day, you come to love him. If Miyuki's character arc is learning to forgive her family, Gin's arc is learning to forgive himself. For what he has done. He is a horrible man. Because when we find out what he did. His past as a cyclist. And why he's homeless. And the scene where Hana just lets him have it. Where she just unloads on Gin. For lying to them about everything. You really do feel bad for him. Because this was his moment where he finally is able to open up and Hana just won't let him have it, knowing that he lied to her and Miyuki about who he really is. But ultimately, Gin finally gets his moment of redemption in the end with the aforementioned chase scene. And again, you're just rooting for him from start to finish. He finally got to be the action hero in the end. Do we have anything else to add about him? And with that, that leads us to one more character, and that is Hana. Not just the best character in the movie, but one of my absolute favorite characters of all time. Hana is a transsexual, though. It has been debated over what sect of the LGBT community Hana is. 
I know that the behind-the-scenes featurettes and Andrew Osmond's excellent book about Satoshi Kon, Satoshi Kon the Illusionist, which is where I get a lot of my information about this from, refers to Hana using masculine pronouns, but more recent localizations refer to Hana with feminine pronouns, so if I slip up with my pronoun usage, I apologize. It's not out of any sort of... It's not out of any sort of acrimony, it's just simple slips of the tongue, but Hana, I don't think there's anything I can say about Hana other than Hana is an absolute treasure of a character. And I could go on about how progressive Satoshi Kon was for making a gay, transsexual, cross-dressing character, but the reality is Satoshi Kon basically gave Hana no thought when it came to creating her. In Satoshi Kon's own words, and I love this descriptor for Hana, Satoshi Kon described Hana as a character that needed to exist. And to me, I think that best sums up Hana. If you don't have Hana, you have no movie. Oh, totally. Totally. Actually, I'd like to point out that dark room full of college kids absolutely went nuts for Hana. Especially a lot of a lot of LGBT fans in the room particularly loved her. And that's where she kind of just became one of one of our own. One of our own for a bit for a bit. It was great. Actually I'm kind of, like, I'm going to stick by what I said with the dub, because accuracy. But also, it's kind of, Hana's creation is just, it's strange for me. Now that I think, now that I'm thinking about it, because I'm like, that kind of touch could have only come from a professional comedian. As much as I crapped on Japan for casting a cis male in that role, you have, you really, Hana really is a product of a lot of moving parts. And I kind of, and hilariously, I think, um, I think Satoshi Kon's statement on her is kind of hilarious, considering, as you said earlier, Nate Satoshi Kon literally dressed up as her to serve as a visual model of uh, when creating the movie, which, which is interesting because in a lot of, in a movie where you have a lot of surrealism, a lot of unreal stuff, you have a character that, that much like the scope, excuse me, of the movie almost exists out of reality, but also in reality. Hana's a product of a lot of different creators, and it chose not just one particular guiding force, but also perfectly encapsulates the nature between, but is also like the linchpin. You have a lot of things coming together to form the linchpin of the movie. The relationship it has to animation, live action, real to fantasy, etc. No one better encapsulate that quite like Hana as a character. From the one-liners to the, frankly, kind of sad, in my opinion, backstory. To expert timing and, of course, the um, this probably being, I'm going to be honest, the most socially relevant character of the entire movie. Because... Like I implied earlier, there are a lot of younger LGBT anime fans who still look up to Hana 20 years later. 
fact, there's probably some watching that movie right now, like tonight, 9-11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, who can relate to that character, which is absolutely incredible for a movie that was created 20 years ago when, quite frankly, some of these students may not have existed uh, to be that relatable. That's why um, That's why I will another bit of a hot take here. Han has become the mascot for this movie and is part of the reason that I still remember this movie years later. Above animation, above writing, above, of course, Satoshi Kon's legacy. Han is our Snoopy. What can I say? Yeah, it seems very prescient that somebody would decide to cast a character in an anime of all things. You know, like, uh, you know, maybe that's a, a, a greater credit to anime itself, which is maybe one might even generalize, say, sometimes is on the cutting edge of, of things that, uh, you know, the rest of cinema and other things may be actually a step behind in the end, you know. But uh, I, I was surprised when, when I, when I, you know, double checked and I and I thought, wow, this was a decision to, you know, make a conscious decision to make a trans character in two thousand three, which was not at all on the minds of many people uh, as it is as, then. I'm old enough to remember um, that uh, as it was as it is today. You know, it's a completely different world. And it's Tashi's comment that it, it just this is a character needed to be that feels like an easy thing to say in an interview, and just to say this is just another you know whether this person was a man or a woman or a, um, or a plumber or an architect, it's just, that's just who they are. I, I, that feels like it was, a, it, was a, it was a designed response to simply pass it off as that. Obviously, I think there was more thought than just that to put it in, you know, because it's a statement, certainly. on There's lots of, there's lots of stories, that, at least I know of here in Vancouver, where... Transgendered people couldn't, you know, find a work or a place to live because they were so different that they ended up on the streets. Um, in many cases, uh, you know, back in the 1970s, them selling themselves on the streets—the only work they could get. So it's, yeah, it's it's uh, it's impressive that it's uh, not just that it was chosen, but at the again the writing and the design of that character is dealt with so deftly. I think. Well, as someone who has been in anime for like 15 years now, you would be shocked at just how much representation gay characters have in this space. And perhaps even more surprisingly, how many of us are okay with it? Like this goes all the way back to the 1980s where you had characters who were gay stereotypes, but still endeared themselves to the viewer. I mean, you now have wholesale genres that are all about boys love, like Shonen Eye, it's called. And then you have the more explicit stuff for gay characters called Yaoi and lesbian characters, Yuri. Oh, yeah, I, I, I realize that. And, and, but my point is that it's, it, this isn't just, yes, gay characters have been handled for the last 50 years in, in books and cartoons and culture and cinema and everything. But, you know, the, the, the transgendered is, is, wasn't something that was necessarily always a part of that conversation. 20 years ago. That was somewhat of another. That was before we had the LGBTQ phrase almost. And this um, is in 2003. As, as it is today. And it was, it, it was, it was not, uh, it was not something necessarily, it was just starting to be then, but uh, to make the conscious decision to make it, to design a character like that, I think was a bold choice. 
um, it may not seem as bold now, but uh, I think it would have been I think it would have been viewed then. I'm curious as to how Hana was initially received. I would assume that the reception to Hana was positive. And to sort of add on Satoshi Kon saying that Hana is a character that had to exist, Kon has said that he did no research into Japan's gay community. And he was afraid as to how Hana would be received by the gay community, not in America, but in Japan. Now, I didn't do any research into the reception, I will admit, but I can say that in spite of what Satoshi Kon has said, he somehow manages to create one of the most endearing gay characters I have ever had the pleasure of viewing in anime. I, I cannot stress this. We all love Hana. Hana is the glue that holds this movie together. If there is no Hana, there is no film. Oh, yeah. I totally agree. And also, like, you see with Hana going through their own hardships as well, because, like, this came out in, like, 2003, right? Yes. Sorry. It's... Okay, because also in, like, the movie, because I recently rewatched the dub, because it also mentioned, because Hana fell in love with, I think it was, I can't remember if it was Ray, if that was the name of the character that Hana fell in love with. Hana was in love with died. another man. I don't remember the yeah. name. Oh, it's okay. But yeah, but what had happened is that the man died of AIDS. And I know, like, because of everything with going on with the 80s, with the AIDS epidemic, and going on, like, kind of recovering after that in the 90s and going on into the early 2000s, you can see with Hana just still persevering and still going on after all of that and seeing with her character and I just absolutely love her character like she's just she just brings a lot of humor and just like just like how you mentioned before earlier just brings that glue that's just needed for that group I like to add another couple things that actually and I actually just remembered as one of the movie's themes is togetherness and family and if you put the three main cast together you actually get something resembling a stylized artist rendering of a nuclear family <laughs> Gein, the the sitcom husband hana the sitcom mom in a progressive way and you got miyuki as the daughter I can't believe we forgot to mention this earlier in the video, because, oh my god, it works! Granted, it all kind of breaks down. It's like a... It all kind of breaks down into its own individual elements. Like a, It's almost like an Andy Warhol painting or something like that. But when you put all that together, it's like, oh wow, this is some 3D chess storytelling. Also, how'd I forget about the uh, AIDS thing? Oh yeah, I, for um, I forgot that. Although, Hana says that uh, it wasn't AIDS that killed her lover. Let's just leave it at that. Yeah, but still. Yeah. Um, I'll give, I'm going to give Hana credit. She's one, she's a, she's built for tough with the heartbeat of Tokyo. If you don't understand mm -hmm. car references, don't worry about that one. Certainly a survivor. I get the feeling that Satoshi Kone had the most fun 
with writing for Hana. And it's funny because while Hana's homosexuality is played up for laughs, it never feels like it's mean-spirited. Like, every time Gin insults Hana for being a transsexual, for being gay, Hana just laughs it off. And there are points where Hana will use her homosexuality to get what she wants. The scene with the taxi driver in particular. Yeah, that part. <laughs> oh lord, have mercy. Your slurs against Hana mean nothing. She knows how to make you move. <laughs> now, Justin, I admit I didn't do much research into this. Has Japan's views on homosexuality changed favorably? Because we all think of Japan as being a very traditional country, but I like to think that they've been a little more accepting of gays into society than they were back in 2003. Actually, yes. And you don't have to go far to find it to find this out. I learned this from, well, okay, part of it's YouTube, but bear with me. Part of it's YouTube, but also the, there's a whole article about this on anime news network from i think five years ago about how particularly in younger since a lot of japan's um population is very center my center around tokyo that's been the driving force of gay acceptance in fact i do believe that that played a big role back during um how do i put this deftly give me a second Let's just say during that time of political unrest in the U.S., it started to. There are a lot of stories coming out of Japan about about that. Um, that hey, we're here, we're loud, we're proud. I think they even. I think there were a couple even of uh, protests about that. Oops, I just that's what that's what I'm trying to not talk about was that happening. But there are a lot of articles on the gay community in Japan and safe to say it's like i don't want to say growing to make it sound like some sort of fat or product or something like that but there is a lot japan especially particularly with the the urban set who are the urban the younger people the younger generations they're driving the movement of gay acceptance it may take some time because of japan's cultural makeup but they're they're getting there it's not quite the u.s even though like to crap on the US. It's not the US and it's not Canada, but it's but it's not as bad as it used to be back in the twentieth century and even around the time that this movie was made. So they're moving, but it's it's not a perfect uh, it's not a perfect state. But nowadays there are, there's little pockets in their community that are chugging along and I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure this movie's even popular in there. I'd have to go back and reread that Anime News Network article. I guess it's always been there. I mean, I, I regret I've, I've never been to Japan myself. I've always wanted to go. But when you think of somebody like Yukio Mishima, you know, maybe he was an outlier in that sense. But uh, I wonder how the differences in how they would, because it's two very separate things, whether their society would view on one hand gay and lesbian people and in another column, uh, transgendered people, because we have those issues here as well. There's lots of people who seem fine with, you know, they don't, gay liberation has sort of been fought and won, but they, when it comes down to transgendered people, and these are topics of discussion you see in the news all the time right here. I'm curious to see how it's, how it's changed over the years in, in Japan in that sense, or if it's always 
sort of, you know, they've, they've always had a somewhat adult view of, uh, of gay culture and gay rights there, even though it's a traditional society in many ways. And that, of course, that's changed too. But uh, yeah, it's interesting to see how, uh, it'd be interesting to explore that question a bit, a bit further. Oh, yeah, definitely. I'd like to add this as well. They're less the artists that, like, you know, are anime people, for example. Uh, definitely the ones, I would say the ones who, kind of like in the U.S., are leading the charge. I will add this. I'm not 100. I don't have accurate figures for the trans community over there. But a lot of art like this and what you see what we see from the here in the US and abroad it a lot of it though might be rooted in what the artist wants to see it's definitely make it's the whole thing about art having an impact I think it's a that's something that that from what I'm seeing does transcend cultures every time I think of Hana I also think of another character that we've talked about on this podcast, and you were on for both episodes of this, and that's the character of Nathan Seymour, a.k.a. Fire Emblem, from Tiger and Bunny. Because, like Hana, at least from an artist's intention standpoint, Fire Emblem was written as a gay stereotype, but... Fire Emblem is also not just a gay stereotype. There's so much more to Hana's character. She's the one who has the most emotional moments. She's the one who suffer. She's the one who has the most emotional baggage. Like, if Gin's result of being homelessness is his own undoing, then Hana's reason for being homeless is just being a social outcast. Hana never had a place that she can call home. The closest she had was that Okama bar that she worked at, and after she got kicked out, she had nowhere else to go. Oh yeah, totally. It actually feeds into the um, it feeds into that uh, dynamic of characters appearing to be one thing and then being another. That whole blank versus blank dynamic. And Satoshi Kon gives some of the best moments in the film to Hana. She's the one who takes the initiative. As soon as they find Kyoko in the town dump, she's the one who immediately says, no, we're not taking her to the police. We're going out to look for her family ourselves. She's the one who goes to look for Miyuki after she's kidnapped at the Yakuza gathering. She's the one who helps take Kyoko to her mother, the person they assume is Kyoko's mother. And in the big climactic final scene, Hana is the one that gets the big triumphant moment. There is so much that we can say about Hana, and we've definitely said mouthfuls. For a character that Satoshi Kon admits that he put no real thought into, Hana is one of the greatest characters you will ever bear witness to in anime. Whenever, whenever somebody says, oh, Anime has such complex characters and whatnot, and they list somebody like Deku from My Hero Academia, or, I don't know, Nobara from Jujutsu Kaisen. My immediate thought is, do you even watch anime? Because whenever I think of complex characters, I think Yang from Legend of the Galactic Heroes, I think of Kurinosuke from Princess Jellyfish, 
who is also a cross-dresser, although he's not a transsexual. He's just a dude who loves wearing women's clothing. Hell, I even think of Astro Boy, given some of the stories that Tezuka put him in and some of the moral dilemmas uh, he faced. And yes, I will never ever be afraid to list Hana, because you get so much character development out of Hana in an hour and a half than you get with most characters in manga series that span more than 26 volumes. Anyone want to add on to that? I think we're good there. I got this <laughs> in my eye socket. I don't think we can say too much about Sachiko and Yasuo's subplot, the so-called people of interest that they're pursuing, because so much of the movie is spent with our trio, but... I do think that their subplot is charming. It's charming. Half of it's kind of spoilery. <laughs> or at least the part that I liked was super spoilery. Like I said, it could almost be a mini-series with that. Because I'm because um You got the main trio. You got their pursuit of uh of Sachiko. Yeah, it could almost be its own mini-series, especially in um, you know, that part of the ending. And it ends on such a beautiful note. Playing into the movie's themes of redemption and rediscovering love lost. And while Satoshi Kona said that he meant for the final interaction between Miyuki and her father to be left ambiguous and open to interpretation, Andrew Osman points out in his book Satoshi Kone the Illusionist that if you look closely at the hospital, it's illustrated in a way to make it look like it's smiling. That's something I actually did not pick up on until the, until the second viewing. <laughs> and that is when the eggnog, and that is when everyone was wondering, how much eggnog did I, did I have? <laughs> there's, a few other, there's a few other Easter eggs and coins of the cake, as I like to say, that the, especially some of the, some of the if, I, if I remember right, some of the advertising that you see in the background, or you come in and there's a couple of movie po posters from, uh, from his other films, but there's some other stuff that fe I wish I could read Japanese because it feels like that, much like the lights and going on and off and scaling up and down in that one scene in the fight. That some of those ads or some of the text that isn't wasn't indicated on any subtitles that I saw uh, may have an additional treat in there somewhere. I, I'm not sure. Let's wind this down quickly. Do we have any final thoughts on Tokyo Godfathers? Because I got a whole spiel about why I love it so much. Well, why don't you start? You go for it. Oh yeah, yeah, do that first. Of all of Satoshi Kon's works, while my heart belongs to Millennium Actress as my favorite, this is the movie that makes me miss Satoshi Kon the most. Because while Satoshi Kon is a director who is most famous for his surrealism and blending fantasy and reality, this is a movie where he puts away his bag of tricks, for the most part, and just makes a movie about three people with nowhere to go trying to do the right thing. And it shows that he had so much more to give as a director, which makes his passing all the more tragic. Like, his next movie that he was making, Dreaming Machine, that was about a trio of robots on a journey to become human, likely inspired by an anime he grew up watching, The Galaxy Express 3-9. But because of his passing and because of the state of the industry, 
we'll probably never get to see that thing being made in full, and it's a huge shame. If Satoshi Kon was still alive, I would like to see where he would have gone as a director. When he says that he felt that he hadn't made his best movie yet, I don't think that was an arrogant, oh, you ain't seen nothing yet sort of thing. It's just, yeah, I've made some movies, and I like them, but I, I don't think I've made one that I could say is one that I'm truly proud of. Like, he was a fan of other different sorts of films. He was a big Terry Gilliam fan. One of his big inspirations was George Roy Hill's Slaughterhouse-Five. He was a big Kurosawa fan. I'd love to see him make a samurai movie, and we get glimpses of that in Millennium Actress. Hell, I would like to see him make a Western, because apparently he was a Western fan. But unfortunately, due to his passing, we'll never know just what he was capable of. And every time I watch Tokyo Godfathers, I just think, man, Satoshi Kon was only getting started as a director. And what he leaves behind with Tokyo Godfathers is a funny, melodramatic, ultimately touching human drama that takes place during the holiest time of the year. It's one that I routinely feature in my rotation for Christmas movies. Alongside Christmas Vacation, It's a Wonderful Life, Home Alone, Joyeux Noel, my personal favorite, that's the Christmas movie about the Christmas truce of World War I, and of course, the Christmas classic, On Her Majesty's Secret Service. <laughs> Yeah, I know everybody was expecting Die Hard, but my, one of my favorite Bond films is indeed a Christmas movie. Honor Majesty's Secret Service ran so that Die Hard could run too. It's also a movie that, that embodies what Christmas is about. It has themes of forgiveness, it has themes of redemption, but it also asks the viewer to care about not just the people you love, but for those who need love the most. The homeless the LGBT community, and something that we didn't really touch on, immigrants, especially in a country that is very stringent with immigration, like Japan, although they're slowly opening up. It's a movie that shows us that miracles can happen, and that three people with nowhere to go can bring joy to a society that shunned them. And if you take nothing away from Tokyo Godfathers, just make it serve as a reminder that there are people out there who need some love. And especially on Christmas, go out there and do something for people who need love the most. Do any of you have anything to add on that? I'm going to go next. Um, first, Tatoshi Khan, freaking brilliant director. I mean, his name is already amongst the already in the anime fans hall of fame that sucks that he passed at 46 because i think um we really truly hadn't seen the best he's got heck i think um if he were still alive today he would probably be the biggest draw for western anime fans and movie theaters he would probably almost supplanted miyazaki in the minds of us americans as, like, the greatest anime director of all time. There's a momentum they started with Tokyo Godfathers. It was going places. Heck, even his unmade movie plot was... It would have timed up perfectly with Daft Punk's Human After All, so we probably could have gotten a collaboration between the two out of that. And 
considering uh, Daft Punk's sister making the soundtrack. Oh boy, that would have been a game changer. That said, back going back to back to our feature, it's the heartbeat of Christmas for anime fans. We obviously don't want, don't eat KFC at Christmas over in the U.S., but maybe we should make an exception for this movie. Uh, just, <laughs> I, I mean, our KFCs are probably still open on Christmas, knowing the state of our, <laughs> knowing the state of that franchise. And I also live near a KFC, so hey, but yeah, it's there's a reason that it's become a bit of a, a tradition for anime fans. It is. Because it is a Christmas movie that I think best involves our own little community the best. Unique, surprisingly progressive, yet it has that, yet it's an outlaw spirit that in many ways is ahead of the curve. And I think our listeners out here on iTunes and wherever need to give it a listen, give it a watch. That dub, the new dub rips. Heck, you may show up on one of your network TV Christmas shows. Beats the hell out of watching Hallmark 24 hours a day, doesn't it? Hey. Heartbeat of Christmas. Hey, don't you badmouth Hallmark. My mom loves that channel. I mean, I have a I mean, I have a soft spot for some of their stories too. But also <laughs> but also it's kind of like become our it's the Mendoza line for Christmas stories. <laughs> I think with Tokyo Godfathers, even for me, whenever I first watched it, whenever I haven't watched any of Satoshi Kon's uh, films, I think this is like a nice way to start off where even if it's not like his very first film, like Perfect Blue, or even if it's not like Paprika or even Paranoia Agent, this is like a nice film to start off with. And it's a nice, different Christmas movie that's not like your normal Christmas movie that we come across here in the U.S. where a lot of it comes across with like the whole commercialization because I think a lot of it actually hits the nail on the head with the true meaning of Christmas with helping others and coming together with reconciliation with family and also just being together for others. And I think this movie it can show like even in even with all the coloring where it's dirty and grimy in different areas it can show some beautiful things that we kind of need sometimes because you can find beauty in just about anything and kind of what i really like about this film plus it's just it's just a nice little unique film and it's just like a breath of fresh air just a nice little refresher after coming across a lot of different types of christmas movies and just it's just something nice there's just something about it that's just very unique and i'm glad that there's a movie like tokyo godfathers that exists aaron your final thoughts well, I uh, first of all, thanks, Nate, for uh, the recommendation and suggesting I should watch it and having me come back for the podcast here. Great fun to talk about it. I'm sort of new to the anime world I'm just from being a voice actor in, in more recent years. So so much of this world is, is new to me. And, I, and it gave me a, 
I think Tokyo Godfathers gave me a, a broader perspective on what you could really do with the whole genre. I, I it seemed to go beyond some of the regular confines of some of the stuff that I've some of the stuff I, I've seen and I'm aware of at this point that I it was a real breath of fresh air and and innovative and and at the end of the day entertaining and held my attention. You know the as I say I I really had no idea where it was going to go um, because they're you know the the characters do a fair bit of wandering and you, and by the very nature I suppose you're going to see a bit of that but just the way the just the way the story was told and how it unfolded was uh, within the the framing of of an anime picture was kind of something that um, I felt very refreshing and very uh, it it struck me as as very innovative and as I said it it held my attention and I was entertained by it so you know certainly thumbs up all around from 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 seeing it and and, uh, and taking it in, I, I, I'm looking forward to maybe seeing some more of his stuff. And uh, I get and uh, and it's and it's so sad that uh, that as you guys have stated better than I, you know, it's uh, this was a guy that was just um, really at the beginning of his career, and uh, you know, we've all had probably somebody we've known or a family member uh, affected by cancer, and it's just another one of those damn statistics that. Uh, so sad that it is. so many people, so many talented people out there, have been have been robbed from us uh, at a, at a young age. You know, it's one thing to get it in your 80s or 90s or anything like that, but to be struck down at 47, oh, geez, that's just it's just a tragedy. Hats off, uh, hats off to him and and uh, for leaving uh, for leaving the work that he did. Whenever somebody asks me what anime is or what I should show someone to anime to someone who isn't already a fan. I would never show them something like My Hero or Jujutsu Kaisen. I want to show them the films of Satoshi Kon because I'd say that Satoshi Kon's film can appeal to somebody who isn't already a fan, even more so than Hayao Miyazaki. I agree fully on that one. That's not to say that I think Satoshi Kon is a better director than Miyazaki. I will never ever deny Miyazaki's contribution to the medium, it's just that Satoshi Kon to me is a lot more visually daring than Miyazaki and again it's really sad that he had to pass when he did especially at a time when anime is becoming way more safe and conservative like you don't have that many auteur directors like who do you have nowadays like what who Makoto Shinkai but that's really it and Miyazaki just retired although it's Miyazaki you never know yeah Oh him, he's he's he never retired. He never retired at all. That's Miyazaki. <laughs> I know I'm speaking hey, a little dead us. here, but I've always said Miyazaki is the Terry Funk of anime directors. Just when you think he retires, he's back for one more match. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. We're go this has been going on for some time, so Aaron, plug your stuff. Oh, geez. Well, um, by all means, do check out uh, Future Boy Conan. It's been out for a couple of years now, but if you haven't seen it, check it out. I, uh, I voiced the role of Captain Dice, and that was uh, that was so much fun to do. That's the last big thing that I've had come out. I've been working on myself, re, uh, adapting some um, stories of Harry Lyme, the Orson Welles uh, radio plays that he did in the very early 1950s, the BBC, and with some local actor talent. Uh, here in Vancouver, and uh, in true Orson Welles fashion, I ran out of money 
to produce the thing halfway through, so I'm going to see if I can finish it off this year. And you'll find that uh, probably up online or something on iTunes or something, at least as a podcast teaser or something like that. I'm hoping to get that done. And uh, working on a, a, a book about uh, the Canadian band Doug and the Slugs, which is going to be out this spring. And later on, uh, I'll be heading to England to uh, work on another book about uh, the British band, The Men They Couldn't Hang. Uh, so it's going to be a busy year for me. And I should say, also, thanks for just having me aboard again. It's, these are always uh, so much fun to participate in, and I, uh, I end up learning a lot. Thank you, and we hope to have you back sometime. I'll see if there's like some anime that I would interest you that's streaming legally, I should say, in Canada, because I want to direct you to a site where you could uh, possibly give your computer AIDS. Right. <laughs> but anyway, we're glad that you enjoyed the show. If you like the show, please give us a like, subscribe to us on Spotify, SoundCloud, Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts, any place you get your podcasts from. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Facebook at OtakuNateShow. And you can follow me on Instagram at NateTendoWee, where I am constantly posting pictures of myself at sporting events. In fact, I just went to Rochester for a double dosage of hockey, and back in December, I went up to Albany for some box lacrosse action to see my Buffalo Bandits take on the Firewolves. They lost that game. And what a year this has been for the Otaku Nate Show. I didn't check, but in the past year, I've put out more episodes than I've had than I've done in previous years. We reviewed two series from acclaimed Jose author Natsume Ono. We reviewed a Yakuza drama disguised as a show about cute maids in Akihabara. We reviewed one of the early works of Gundam creator Yoshiyuki Tomino. We reviewed the first anime I ever owned on DVD and found that it does not hold up. We recorded some follow-up episodes involving Tiger and Bunny and Lupin the Third. I reviewed one of the most offensive anime ever made, well, offensive to me anyway, and followed it up with a three-hour epic about one of my favorite super robot shows from the 2000s. We reviewed a show that told the viewer that they're destroying the environment through things like eating hamburgers, using things with petrochemicals in them, and abortion. And we ring in the new year with a film from one of anime's most acclaimed directors with an old friend in tow. We hope you've enjoyed these past few episodes, because next time, we're selling out and going mainstream. Because we're reviewing the first season of Demon Slayer. And keep in mind, it's just the first season. Depending on how this is received, we may do more, but you never know. So until then, this is Otaku Nate. This is Justin Young. Keep calm and free, bird. This is Sarah, the Stardust Possum. And hey, this is Aaron Chapman along for the ride. Thanks, Justin and uh, Nate and Shannon. It's been great. And we're signing off and saying, a little baby, powdery snow on its cheeks on this holy night. Last Christmas, I gave you my heart, but the very next day, you gave me
one second. My phone's going. <sighs> oh. It's okay. That's fine. I actually couldn't even hear it. Yeah, yeah me neither. I mean, my cat is meowing in the other room. Like, let me in. Really? She's just like, buddy. Yeah, I'm just like, buddy, no. I'm sorry. It's recording time. Would he make too much noise if he's in the room? Is, there, is he a talkative cat? Uh, he's he's a sweet little guy. He has He's an orange cat, and he has... Unfortunately, one brain cell, and he has resting concerned face, and he needs to get into everything. Uh, so Garfield on meds, got it. Yeah, kind of. <laughs> Except he likes to like obliterate paper towels and to like itty bitty tiny little shreds. So I love him. I love him very much. <laughs> Jim Davisism about cat meds. I'm trying to remember. <laughs> <laughs> wish I could remember what it was right now. We've gotten off track yeah. here. Yeah, sorry. I'll include that as a stinger, by the way, if you guys are okay with that. Do it, I dare you. 